Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our fourth session in our series that I've entitled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. Of course, that title um, has come from the request that the disciples made uh, to the Lord Jesus to teach them to pray. And of course, what came out of that was what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. And that was what we talked about in our first session. Today, we're looking uh, at the time of, uh, in the Bible of the book of Judges at a woman named Hannah. Now this is not hard-hearted Hannah, the vamp of Savannah. This is a different Hannah. And I've entitled our time, uh, our study today, Praying for Our Deepest Desires, because that's what, uh, what Hannah was doing. Just by way of some background, this story takes place early in the 11th century B.C. It's a real time of transition. It's known as the period of the judges. Remember, the judges were regional leaders. There was no king at that time. In fact, uh, the uh, really the key verse of the uh, book of Judges, and it appears twice in the book, um, once um, in Judges 21-25, and I put that in your notes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that was the situation. So these judges were regional rulers. For example, uh, we're familiar with Samson. Uh, Samson ruled in the area over near the Mediterranean because that's where the Philistines were. Uh, whereas uh, Gideon uh, ministered up in the hill country and uh, served as a judge up in there. So they were regional rulers. They uh, rose up for a time after a time of real decadence. Uh, people would slide into all kinds of sin and immorality and uh, God would turn loose on them. People like the Philistines or the Midianites or whatever and then the people would cry out for deliverance uh, from God and God would raise up a leader and it might be a Gideon, it might be a, a Samson, uh, some, someone like that. This takes place during that particular time. Uh, certainly during this period there was a real spiritual decline and we certainly see that in our story today. So let's, uh, let's begin reading. I, I will mention in passing that the name Hannah uh, means grace or favor or perhaps even woman of grace or favor. Um, one other thing, just uh, <clears throat> because it's going to come up in the course of the reading, um, the place where Hannah and her husband and their family visit is a place called Shiloh. And Shiloh it was about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. That's where the tabernacle was located. Now remember, at this point, no temple has been built. The temple is not going to be built for for. Um, for a while yet. That's going to happen during the administration of Solomon, who's the third king, and they don't even have a king yet in, uh, in this land. 
But the tabernacle was set up in Shiloh under the administration of Joshua. Remember also that Jerusalem was not under the control of the Israelites. It was controlled by a group called the Jebusites. Uh, it wasn't until David's administration, the second king of Israel, uh, until David and his, uh, his men conquered Jerusalem and David made Jerusalem not only the political capital of Israel but also the religious capital of Israel as well. So if you're wondering why these people are going to Shiloh, it's because that's where the tabernacle, that mobile worship center, was located uh, at the time and had been there for a number of years. Okay, let's begin our reading. And we're going to look at the heartache of Hannah here in these first eight verses of 1 Samuel chapter 1. It says, There was a certain man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other, Peninnah. The name Peninnah means uh, coral or ruby. Uh, apparently, it, uh, I don't know, maybe she had red hair. We just, we just don't know. Uh, and incidentally, the name Elkanah means uh, either God has created or God uh, is possessing. Uh, from my understanding, it can, uh, it can actually mean either one. So here's a man who's got two wives. Now, obviously, there are problems already when you read about that. This, this is not unusual uh, in this particular culture in which they lived. The reason for that was because uh, it was an agrarian culture. You needed children, and you particularly needed sons to look after livestock, to work in the fields to work the vineyards or whatever it was uh, that, that you were doing to, uh, to sustain your life. And very often uh, a man would marry a woman and if it turned out that she, she was barren, uh, sometimes they would divorce the wife uh, and remarry. Uh, sometimes they would keep that first wife even though she was barren and they would marry another woman and hope that the next woman would, uh, would be able to bear children. That's perhaps what had happened here. The Bible doesn't give us any details about the, um, the order in which they were married, but more than likely what had happened was Elkanah had married Hannah. Uh, it turned out that she was not able to bear children, and as we'll see, God had kept her from bearing children because God had a plan for her life because there was a special child that she ultimately would bear at a special time in this transitional period. But because she couldn't bear children, there's a good chance that uh, Elkanah married this woman, Peninnah, and uh, she was able to bear children. She had, the, she had sons and daughters. It says... Uh, we continue our reading. Uh, the name of the one wife was Hannah, the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Now we understand something else about Elkanah, and that was he was apparently a righteous man. Uh, or a godly man. The reason for that, remember the in the Old Testament, the Bible required, uh, the law of Moses required, that men uh, present themselves at the tabernacle three times a year. And uh, now, that wasn't necessarily so for the women, but the men were required to do that. And so, here's... Uh, 
Uh, here's Elkanah doing just that. And in fact, he's taking his family with him as he goes. It says, On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So, so we see already that there's a... Uh, there's a in there's a tension within this family. Uh, certainly, just the tension of having two wives and one husband is enough to create a tension. But it's clear that Hannah was the one who was really loved by her husband, and the other wife. And perhaps it, it doesn't say he didn't love her, but perhaps the reason that he had married her was so that he she could bear children. And, of course, she knew that. And the fact that Hannah's getting double portions of, uh, uh, of the, the peace offering uh, is, uh, indicates that uh, Elkanah cared more, apparently, for her. And verse 6 says, And her rival, and of course the rival there is her wife-in-law, if you want to call her that, the, the other wife of Panenna, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Notice, notice those, those words, her rival. There's a jealousy between these two women, particularly on the part of Panenna. And Panenna, it says, would provoke Hannah and provoke her grievously, and her motivation in provoking her was to do what? Yes, it was to irritate her. And, um, and apparently it was really taking a toll on, uh, on Hannah. So Peninnah's, you know, she's got sons and daughters. Hannah does not have any children at all. And remember, in that culture... That was a big deal. That was one of the reasons as a woman that you were present on the earth. That was why you married this person, this man, so that you could, uh, you could bear children, particularly sons, and the line could go on, and uh, the, the land, the property could be passed down from generation to generation. And so there's this cultural pressure that Hannah is experiencing uh, because she's not able to fulfill what culture expects her to fulfill. So, and, and, and of course, Panenna is right there to sort of egg things on and make it seem even worse. It says, uh, the, and notice verse 7 says, this went on year by year. This is not something that just happened once. This was a continual kind of thing where she was just experiencing this all the time. And remember, when you hear these kinds of things, then you, as you begin to look around and you see other people, you think, well, I bet they're thinking the same thing. They're thinking I'm not much of a woman because I'm not able to produce children. What's wrong with me? Has God cursed me? Is there something wrong with me? Why? Why? What's the matter? And of course... None of that was true. God had not cursed her. In fact, God's going to open her womb. And as I mentioned earlier, God's got a particular time frame that He's working in because the child that she's going to bear is going to be the transitional person. He will be the last of the judges. And in fact, He will be the one who will anoint the first two kings of the united monarchy of, uh, of Israel. But of course, Hannah doesn't know that at this point. But it apparently was getting to Hannah because it says also there in verse 7, it says, Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Now this is a time of feasting, but 
Hannah's uh, very distraught. It says, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Notice that Elkanah's trying to be sensitive, and he says, look, I understand that, that you feel this pressure from the culture around you, from all these women around you looking at you, and and the, what you think are the whispers behind their hands uh, where they're saying there's something wrong with you. But look, you... Sweetheart, you are worth more to me than ten sons. It's okay that you're not able to bear children. But notice, in spite of his sensitivity to her, it still is not working. And, and I think one of the things that we can, uh, we can begin to draw in terms of an application here is the, uh, the tremendous pressure that culture um, puts on us. It, it can have such a tremendous impact on the way we even view ourselves. Uh, you know, Han- here's, here's Hannah who's loved and appreciated by her husband, and yet she still felt unfulfilled because of her barrenness. Now, the, the question we ought to ask ourselves is, do I see myself, do you see yourself as God sees us? Or do we tend to see ourselves as culture insists that we view ourselves? That if, if we don't have the right body type, if we don't eat the right food, if we don't have the right kind of automobile, if we don't live in the right neighborhood, if we don't have the special kind of TV, if we don't have an iPad, uh, and it, the list just goes on and on. If we don't marry the right kind of person, you know, there's just all these pressures. If, think of it this way. Uh, think of concentric circles. And just in the, in the very innermost circle, just, just write a great big capital I. That, that's where we are. And then you've got a, and then the circles begin to go, the concentric circles surround that eye and, and immediately you've got, uh, you've got family that's, uh, that's putting pressure on you. Uh, the circle after that, you've got close friends that are putting pressure on you. Uh, once you go to work, you've got work putting pressure on you. You've got to dress a certain way. You've got to have a certain kind of education. Uh, it, Odd infinitum. In fact, eventually you get out there where you've got the state that puts pressure on you. You either conform, you do what we tell you to do, or we'll. There's some places you step over the line. We will take your life. And so, culture has a way of putting pressure on us. Remember Romans chapter one. I'm sorry, Romans chapter twelve, verse one tells us that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. But verse 2, and particularly I like the Phillips uh, version there, uh, and it's really more of a, uh, a paraphrase than anything else, but in, uh, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, in the Phillips uh, paraphrase, it says, And don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. And that's what the world is constantly trying to do. Remember 1 John chapter 2 where it talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the sinful pride of life? Uh, There's this desire to impress, the desire to indulge, the desire to possess. All of that is working inside of us. And then there are these cultural pressures outside of us. And so you you just... It's a perfect setup for the frustration that Hannah certainly was feeling right here. Now... 
Let's uh, let's let's continue continue our reading here. Verse uh, verse nine, and here here we see Hannah beginning to develop some hope. In verse nine, it says, "After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh." Now, of course, Hannah has not. She's she's been too upset to do all of that. It says, "Hannah rose." Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Um, Eli is the high priest. He has two sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, both of whom are scoundrels. And it just speaks again to the decadence of the time and to the spiritual decline that's going on. These, these, these were just scum of the earth type of boys. And they were going to be following in their dad's footsteps there uh, as, you know, doing priestly work there at the temple. Uh, yeah, well, that's, that's the, I mentioned the word temple because it, it says that here. Mind you, there was no temple at this point. Why did the author use the term temple? The only thing I can come up with and what, uh, what Bible um, scholars seem to indicate is obviously there's no temple. Solomon built the temple uh, many years later. But because men, Jewish men, were required to come here, there's sort of a, I guess, a cottage industry that just kind of grew up around the tabernacle. Because with all these guys coming from all over the country, obviously you're going to have to have some places to stay. Uh, you're going to have to have places to buy food. And so there's this whole industry that just kind of grows up. And a lot of Bible scholars think that that's probably the reason for the use of that particular word. But when you read temple here in the book of Judges, don't think about that thing all that was just magnificent and covered in gold. Uh, that's That's not what he's talking about at all. But anyway... Eli sitting here on the seat at the doorpost there at the tabernacle. And it says uh, of, uh, of Hannah, it says she was deeply distressed. Now, she, she's still really upset. Peninnah's getting to her. And just the, the whole idea, it's a, just a reminder all the time of how she's just not fulfilling her role as a woman in the culture in which she lived. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said this. She, she said, and notice, there's no revenge on the part of Hannah. Uh, she, she's not going to pray, Lord, I wish you'd just take my wife-in-law, my, my fellow wife, and, uh, and get rid of her. And uh, There's nothing like that. Notice what she prays. This is her first prayer. He says, O Lord of hosts. And notice the, the word Lord there is in all caps. So that's the covenant name of God. She's calling on Yahweh, the, the, one, the great I Am, the one who is self-existent, the one who needs nothing, but the one who is in covenant relationship with His people. O Lord of hosts. And the word host there, the, the, the Lord of the army, the armies of heaven. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now I know, having just read that, if 
if you didn't read it in the assignment, that you've got questions already. So let's just talk about uh, several things here. First of all, as she prays, she says, Remember me, don't forget your servant. Now, this does not mean that Hannah thinks that God might have Alzheimer's or some type of dementia. Obviously, God is omniscient. He knows everything. God knows the end from before the beginning. But in the in the Bible, the word remember can mean trying to uh, essentially calling things to mind when he's talking about human things. But very often when we're talking about the divine, when we're talking about God, remember in, in the book of Hebrews, in quoting from Jeremiah uh, about the new covenant, it says, your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more, God says. Now does that mean somehow God has develop dementia as far as your iniquities and sins are uh, our sins and iniquities are concerned of course not god again knows everything but what it does mean is that god is not going to act against us because of those things and why isn't god going to do that well because we our faith is in christ and christ is our sin bearer all our sins were placed on Christ. Christ bore the wrath of God for our sins. So God has already remembered our sins on Christ. He has acted on our sins in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for those sins. So when she prays, "Remember me and not uh, remember me and not forget your servant," she's saying, "Oh Lord, I am praying that you will act on my behalf." And what is it that she wants God to do? She wants God, obviously, to open her womb. And she says this, she says, I will give, if you, and you please give to your servant a son. Notice, not a child. She wouldn't be, a daughter, I, I, love, I, I love my daughter, and I, I love ladies. And I think it's great that the world is filled with wonderful women. But the truth is, is that in this case, in this culture, what was really grinding her gears is that she could not give birth to a son. And she says, I'm praying that you will give me a son. And if you do, she says, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. So now that now we 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 think we understand what that means because we we we've been to baby dedications. We say, well, oh, they're 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 dedicating the baby to the Lord. So and she's saying, if you give me a little boy, I'll dedicate him to you, uh, so he'll he'll be yours all the days of his life. Well, then what does that last phrase mean? And no razor shall touch his head. You know, what does God care about haircuts? Well, that has to do with what she just said about dedicating her child, because this is a reference to a Nazarite vow. Now, a Nazarite vow was a vow of consecration that people would take in Bible days, and generally, almost always, they were temporary vows. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set aside the next 30 days, or I'm going to set aside the next two months to the Lord. And uh, one, there, were, there were three things that, a, uh, that, that were involved in the Nazarite vow in setting yourself apart to the Lord. In fact, if you look in the left-hand column of your notes, uh, in that passage from Numbers chapter 6, now obviously this, this was given during the time of Moses, which would have been 
years before what we're talking about here. But notice what God said to Moses regarding this, this Nazarite vow. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. Notice this is a separation to the Lord, but it is from something else. And in fact, it's from three different things. And if you uh, keep reading that, well, let's just read it. Separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong... uh, I'm sorry. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. What's What's a dried grape? That Yeah, that's right. It's a raisin. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that's produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. So, first prohibition, nothing from the vine, liquid or solid. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow long. That's the second one, no haircuts. Third, all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head all the days of his separation. He is holy to the Lord. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is generally a a temporary... Uh, Commitment, or yeah, I guess I guess that's the right word. A temporary commitment, where I'm really dedicating myself to the Lord. You know, some, the Lord's really put this kind of some sort of burden on my heart, or I'm trying to really figure out some things about it, and I really need to just uh, devote myself significantly to uh, to standing before the face of God. Uh, kneeling before the face of God and seeking His face. Okay, in the Bible and in the Old Testament, it said, "Fine, you can do that. You can do it for whatever period of time you want to." But during that time, there are three things that you stay away from. And if you know, even if mom or dad or uh, one of your relatives dies during that time, you don't go near that dead body while while you're during that time of consecration. However, there were three people in the Bible who took a permanent Nazarite vow. One of them was Samson. It's interesting, you look at the life of Samson, he broke every one of those vows. Uh, he, was a, he was a drinker along with the Philistines that he fought. Uh, he certainly touched dead bodies and he got a haircut, didn't he? Another, uh, and Samuel, who is going to be the child who will be born to Hannah, is, uh, is, uh, is the second of those who took a permanent Nazarite vow. And then the third one we find when we get to the early pages of the New Testament, and that's John the Baptizer. He had a permanent Nazarite vow uh, in his life as well. All right, so she has uh, she said this, Lord, give me a son. If you give me a son, I'll give him to you all the days of his life, and he'll be a Nazarite. He'll be separated to you. 
Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, now remember he's the high priest, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. What was she doing? That's right, she was praying silently. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Now notice, Eli jumped to a conclusion because he saw her mouth moving he didn't hear anything, and he just assumed she was drunk. Now, see, this is a real commentary as well on the times because the high priest has seen this kind of stuff so much that he just assumed that here's another drunk hanging out here at the uh, out, outside the tabernacle. He said, uh, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Notice again the terminology that's used of, of her. Uh, vexation, great anxiety, uh, irritated, provoked of the words that we that we saw previously. It says, Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. Now what was Eli saying? Was Eli saying, You're going to get what you want? He said, No, that's not what Eli was saying. Eli was saying essentially, well, you know, okay, you were praying, may the Lord give you whatever it is that you were praying for. This is the kind of thing that you or I would say to somebody if, if, uh, if they were praying. Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you made to Him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, how do you account for that? I mean, her husband has come up to her and said, Sweetheart, I sure do wish you'd eat. Uh, you know, you're really better to me than, than having ten boys around. I, I love you more than anything else. And yet, that made absolutely no difference whatsoever to her. She's still distressed. She's still distraught. And now you've got this high priest sitting at the doorway to the tabernacle who essentially says, who calls her a drunk, and then says, oh, well, I, I didn't realize that you were praying silently. Uh, well, I, you know, I hope the Lord will give you what it is that you want. And all of a sudden, she brightens up, and it's like things have changed dramatically, and there's a smile on her face, and she's eating. What in the world's going on? Well, isn't it interesting that sometimes the people who are closest to us, uh, who are sensitive to us, that somehow we, we, we just don't take to heart the, the real intent tension that they have in trying to assuage our feelings, but some veritable stranger, just some little word that somebody else says can have such a dramatic impact in our life. And it may be the fact that because he was the high priest at the time that she put a lot of stock in that. A lot of people put a lot of stock in what a lot of preachers say. But our faith ultimately needs to be in God Himself. And I believe that's where it was in the case of Hannah. Now, so now she seems to have some peace of mind, and uh, but where is the object of her faith? 
and uh, it apparently is in the Lord. Now, in uh, in verse 19 and following, we see uh, the happy event occur. It says, They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. So the family goes back, both the wives and all those kids, and uh, you know, Elkanah and Hannah and Peninnah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife. Now remember the word no uh, can mean, you know, well, just, yeah, I, I know who you are or know about something. But very often in the biblical sense, the word no means to have a sexual relations with someone. It's the idea of being intimate with someone. You remember in Genesis, it says, and Adam knew his wife. It means more than Adam could pick his wife out of a lineup with hippos and chipmunks and giraffes and say, oh, yeah, I She's the one with the, with the two legs over there. I, I know her. No. Uh, in Genesis, it means that uh, when it says Adam knew his wife, it means he was intimate with her because the result of that knowing was the birth of a son. And that's the same case here. Um, that intimacy is an important thing to remember because remember in John chapter 17, verse 3, that's the great high priestly prayer of John 17 that Jesus prays before He goes to the cross. And in John 17, 3, he, he gives a definition of eternal life. He says, And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life? It's knowing God and knowing Christ. Not knowing about God, not knowing about Christ. It's far more than that. It's the idea of eternal life is being intimate with God, being intimate with Christ and growing in that intimacy with Him. So, uh, they have normal uh, relations and the result of that is the Lord remembered her. What did the, the, the now again? This is not the ancient of days scratching his head and saying, "Oh yeah, I remember that." No, that's not what's going on at all. What is the Lord doing? He is when he remembers her, he acts in her behalf, and what he does obviously is he opens her womb, and it says, "And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel." Uh, Samuel can either mean the name of God or it can mean heard by God. And certainly her prayer had been heard by God. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah didn't go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Notice, her intention is to do exactly what she said she was going to do. She said, If you'll give me a son, I'll dedicate him to you. And in this case, she says, uh, I'm going to... Uh, Elkanah, you, you go on. You and Peninnah and all those boys and girls, y'all go on up there to Shiloh. And you worship. But Samuel and I are going to stay here. He's going to stay with me until he's weaned. Because when we take him for the first time, when he goes up there for the first time, what's going to happen is we're going to leave him there. He's going to stay there forever. So notice, uh, Hannah is, is really intent in keeping the promise, in keeping the vow that she has, uh, that she has made to the Lord. 
And incidentally, though, in this culture, generally weaning took place around age three to three and a half, which, which I know seems strange uh, in our culture because by the time they get three, they're sort of walking around some and they're, uh, they're using simple sentences. And that seems like... Uh, to us, like a uh, like a long time to be uh, nursing at a mother's breast, but that's that's the way it was uh, in in that day. All right, said uh, and notice the husband's response is verse twenty three. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, "Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish His word." So Elkanah's saying, "That's fine. I don't have a problem with that." Uh, let's just be sure, though, uh, that you are planning on keeping your vow. And, of course, she was. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she'd weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull. And then there, you notice there's an ellipsis there in your notes, but there are a number of other things that they that they took with them to offer to the Lord. And the things that they took were really above and beyond what the law required. So not only was Elkanah a wealthy man, uh, I'm sorry, a godly man, he apparently also was a wealthy man to be able to afford uh, all of these things that he was bringing up. And it says, uh, then, then they slaughtered the bull, That's they offered the sacrifice, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, and she says this to Eli. She says, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Now, a couple of things here. This is where Hannah dedicates uh, Samuel to the Lord and leaves him there with Eli. Can you imagine what that must have been like? This is such an ungodly period of time. And those two boys of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they're grown boys uh, acting as priests, and how ungodly they were. If you, if you read this whole context, the context of this passage it's just amazing some of the terrible things that they were doing and here's this woman hannah who is uh, who is leaving this three and a half or four year old child right there with this uh in this particular situation and notice it says in verse 28 i have lent him to the lord as long as he lives he is lent to the lord now don't let that fool you right there that doesn't mean well i'm i'm like we loan a tool to somebody. Now, I try not to loan my tools to anybody because you don't always get them back in the best shape. But it's, it's not like loaning something to somebody with the idea, well, I'm going to loan it to you and then I'm going to get it back. This, this, this word that's used here in translated lent, it's used, used twice, is the word that, that has the idea is that, I'm Lord, I'm giving back to you what you have given to me. In other words... Hannah's saying, you know, I'm holding my son here. The, the thing that means more to me than anything else, I'm holding him with open hands and I'm giving him back to you. So this this is really costly as far as Hannah is concerned. And And I want to pause and just talk about that for just a minute. What do our gifts to God cost us? You know, and I'm not talking about just money. I'm talking about things like time 
and our our willingness to be inconvenienced. You know, very often somebody will say, well, could you do so-and-so and so-and-so? I said, well, you know, I will if I can get around to it. I, I, I'll be glad to do that if it's convenient for me. Is our giving to the Lord convenient? Or is it costly? Does it cost us to do something? And I, and I want to point out something to you. This is not in your notes at all. If you want to jot down the reference, you can. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 24. It's uh, the, the last two or three chapters of uh, 2 Samuel really form an appendix. We're not exactly sure when this event took place, but we do know that it did take place during the time of David's administration as king, which obviously would have been uh, sometime uh, past what we're reading about here in uh, in First Samuel chapter one, but this is Second Samuel twenty four, and what's happened is that David has called for a census. Now God didn't like kings calling for censuses. Uh, occasionally God would call for a census, but kings were not to call for a census, and the reason was that God didn't want him want kings counting heads and counting horses to see how, how big a cavalry troop they had and how many horses they had that could, uh, that could haul the chariots around because that way the king was depending on his army and depending on his cavalry uh, to, to look after him rather than really depending on the Lord. But David insisted on doing this even though one of his nephews, Joab, who was, oh my, was an ungodly man, uh, tried his best to talk him out of it because even the ungodly Joab knew that this was not a direction to go in. But David insisted on counting heads and so they proceeded and finally got the census and of course it uh, uh, it was a mistake. In fact, in Second Samuel 24, and I just want to read a few verses from there. Verse 10 says, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And what God did was he gave David an option of three, uh, three, three options. And David chose the one where he said, look, I don't want to fall into the hands of man. Just let me fall into the hands of the Lord. And the Lord's judgment on David and on Israel for that was three days of pestilence to go through the land. Well, obviously, if you've got three days of pestilence going through the land, guess what that does to the census right away? Yeah, the census is not worth the parchment it's on anymore because folks are just dying like flies. But in fact, it says in verse 15, the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba. Remember, Dan's the northernmost city, Beersheba's the southernmost city. 70,000 men. And that doesn't include the women, the children, uh, and livestock or anything else. And then all of a sudden, this death angel appears. Uh, just right outside of Jerusalem, ready with his sword unsheathed, ready to just uh, bring wrath on the people of Jerusalem. And uh, in verse 18, it says, And Gad, now Gad was a prophet. Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arona looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arona went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arona said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? 
David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. And then Arona said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arona gives to the king. And Arona said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Notice, Arona said, look, I, I, I want the death angel to get out of here too. Just take it all. You can have it and make your offering to the Lord and may the Lord be merciful to all of us. But here's what I want you to see. Verse 24, But the king said to Arona, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And if you look at the parallel passage, you'll see that David didn't try to bargain with him. He paid the full price of what that land and those oxen and the threshing sledges and the yoke, what, the worth of all of it, the full price. Because he says, I will not offer to God anything that costs me nothing. Is our giving to the Lord convenient? What does it cost us to give to the Lord? Well, let's look at the second prayer that, uh, that Hannah prayed. Our time's about to get away from us here. The first prayer obviously sprang from her bitterness and her anxiety and distress. And God graciously answered that prayer and gave her uh, a son whom she named Samuel. This prayer is, springs out of really out of joy. And the prominent theme of this prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2 is really that the Lord is righteous. The Lord is just. The Lord always does what is right. It, it breaks down into three major parts. The first couple of verses really are a doxology. They're words of praise and worship where she rejoices in God and thanks God for His provision. And then verses 3 through 8 are words of warning to God's enemies. And, uh, and she talks about the way God governs uh, in her prayer, the way God governs things, even, even points out seven different contrasts. For example, you know, the Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. And then the last couple of verses are words of confidence where she, where she is confident of the Lord's uh, protection and that... Uh, uh, that uh, that ultimate victory in the long run is the thing that provides confidence for things in the short run. We know that God wins in the long run. Well, what about right now where I am, where all this stuff is going on? Well, knowing that God is really in control should help me in the short run as I look at the things that are right in front of me. Let's just read through this uh, this prayer. We'll make, probably make a few uh, little comments, but because of the uh, the, the time, we, we won't we won't make a lot of comments. 1 Samuel chapter 2, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. Now, the prayer begins and ends the same way. She begins by exalting or exalting in, in the Lord, and it ends the same way where uh, she, uh, she talks about exalting the horn of His, uh, uh, the power of the one who will be the anointed one. Let's, let's go back to verse 1 again. She prays, My heart exalts in the Lord, and my horn, a horn is a, is a symbol of power. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, the word salvation certainly 
uh, often means salvation from sin, but it's a, it's, a, it's a rich word that means even more than that. The, the basic meaning of the word is that of deliverance. And she is thanking God uh, for her deliverance. But for her deliverance from what? From her barrenness. God has delivered her from that. And that's why she's, she's so joyous. Now again, remember the tremendous impact that this culture is having on her and the, the, the impact that our culture has on us as well. My mouth derides my enemies. I, I, I've often wondered if she, I wondered if she had Panina in mind when she talks about her enemies and uh, and and those who speak proudly. But anyway, well, there's there's no way of knowing for sure. I guess it says I rejoice in your salvation, your deliverance. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. So she talks about the holiness of God. That's the way she begins, and she talks about she she uses the uh, the analogy of a rock. Now, does that mean that she views God as cold and hard? Of course not. In this case, the rock means stability, uh, steadfastness, strength. That God is the strength of my life. He is the one who brings stability to my life. Again, this this whole idea that. Knowing that he that that there's victory in the long run is the thing that makes me able to just uh, maintain my peace of mind and 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 be sustained in the uh, in the short run when I'm going through things. She goes on to say, "Talk no." She goes on to pray. I should say, "Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. God knows everything. He's omniscient." And by Him, actions are weighed. Here she's talking about God's judgment. Notice, actions are weighed. It's not that just actions are judged, but what is the purpose of your actions? What was the motive behind the action? If, you, if you're weighing the action, you're not only weighing the results that occurred because of what was done, but you're also looking at the motivation behind it. And God can see all of that. Remember Psalm 139? Some, some of you are working on some, a little assignment. Is, is, uh, from Psalm, part of it is Psalm 139. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. God knows what's in our minds. He knows the things that we want to say that we don't say. That's what she's talking about here. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. She, again, I think she's contrasting herself and Panina uh, in this case here. The baron has borne seven. Now, she did not ultimately have seven children. She wound up having six. I think the word seven here is probably a reference to uh, the completeness of God's blessing in her life. But she who has many children is forlorn. And certainly Panina was. And I think that was one of the reasons for her jealousy was because she recognized that she was not loved in the same way that Hannah was loved in spite of the fact that she was able to have children, which is very reminiscent of, <clears throat> remember, the household of Jacob with, uh, with Leah and Rachel. Leah was the one who could have children and the, the names of the children, you know. Well, uh, you know, the Lord has heard me. And then uh, sh sh surely my husband will become attached to me. Surely my husband will love me. All these things that, that Leah would say every time she'd have a child. And, 
and she never got that kind of love from Jacob. And yet Rachel was the barren woman for a long for a good period of time. But Rachel was the one who had Jacob's love. He was the he she was the light of his eye. Now I think that's what we're seeing here. The Lord, and then there there are a number of contrasts that continue here. Uh, we see God's sovereign rule in the world. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, the grave, and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. You see, God is in control of all of life. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth. Now, we're going back to the stability again. The, 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 that God is upholding not only the physical universe, but He's also upholding the moral order of things and, and is ruling over that and therefore will bring judgment when, uh, when that morality is violated. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. You don't, you don't violate God's morality and get by with it. You may think you get by with it, but God doesn't always pay off on Friday at 6 o'clock, but there is a payoff one day. Sometimes we think, well, you know, the Babylonians are at the gate. Uh, maybe it could be the Babylonians are already inside the gate. Uh Notice verse 9, and here, here's where it talks about uh, God's preser preservation. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Hannah didn't prevail by her might. How did she prevail? That's right, she prevailed by her faith. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Um... Uh, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength. And notice, there's a, it ends in a prophetic way. And this, this is great because this is the whole reason that Samuel came. Uh, he will give strength to His king. They didn't have a king right now. But God will give strength to His king and exalt the horn of His anointed uh, ultimately, there's going to be a king. And of course, the king, I'm sure, that is in mind here is not Saul, but ultimately David. Saul was more or less the people's choice. Uh, David was the one who was after God's own heart, uh, although he was 100% a sinful man, just like uh, the rest of us. Uh, have to deal with those same kind of issues all the time. And he says, and exalt the horn of his anointed. Kings as well as uh, high priests and prophets were anointed for their office. However, this anointing here may be also prophetic in a, in a more expansive way and may refer to the fact that one day the truly anointed one, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, would come. It may be a reference to that. The story ends, uh, I, I call it, uh, what we just read was Hannah's hallelujah, but here's Hannah's heritage in, in the verses that follow. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Again, you see this, and there's a tremendous contrast here with with the ungodliness that was going on throughout the land, the decadence of the period of time. 
And you've got, uh, you've got Eli, who's an old, old man now, and his two boys who are just terrible guys. And right there in the midst of that is Samuel. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They didn't know the Lord. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. That means they disregarded, uh, they considered the, those sacrifices as worthless. It was just a way to get meat to, to feed their own bellies. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Uh, the ephod was like a tunic or a, an apron that was, uh, that was worn in the priesthood. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Every year they make that 20-mile trip. 20 miles up, 20 miles back. And she'd take a, she'd take a little robe with it, and the next year the robe would be a little bit bigger because she knew that boy was growing up. So you really see the uh, Hannah's continuing care of her son even though she's kept her vow and she has left him there in the presence of the Lord, dedicated to the Lord. Uh, and it says, Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord, and of course also in the presence of Eli and his sons. But Samuel was a godly, godly man. And it's a, it's a, it's a great character study to do a, a study on, uh, on Samuel. Well, let's look briefly at, uh, at the conclusion and, and final applications. We've already talked about the first one, about the, the, the impact that culture can have on us. Uh, look at that, uh, in that first application, look at that uh, uh, quote there from Psalm 37. It says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. You know, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, one of the things that happens is the, the things that we really desire begin to change. Our, our deepest heart's desire begin to change. Thing, the things that were so important for us before seem to sort of, uh, very often seem to kind of fade in the distance somewhat. And the things that are more important, the, the things that are important to God begin to come to the forefront. And as we delight ourselves in the Lord, God gives us those desires. Uh, just a, a beautiful picture here. Commit, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He'll do this. What will He do? He'll make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. That's the toughest thing to do. And I'm sure that was the toughest thing for Hannah. And incidentally, before we leave this thing about the, uh, about the culture, just one last thought. And that is that you and I cannot change or stop the criticism that others have of us. But we can choose to respond to that criticism in a positive way. And that's a good thing, good thing to remember.
Um, second application, God is the very present helper of His people in their times of trouble. Uh, Hannah presented her problem to God. She trusted in God to meet her need. And then what did she do? She waited. And God eventually acted on her behalf. Uh, remember, patience is part of the fruit, is, is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Patience is not the fruit of the Christian. It's not something that we work up on our own. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's as we spend time in the presence of God, as we spend time in the presence of God's Word, as we seek to obey God, as we seek to walk in a way that's worthy of Him, God works in our life by His Spirit and He develops within us love and joy and peace and patience. Mm. Samuel was God's provision at precisely the right moment for a troublesome time of transition. Where, where do we turn in times of trouble? You know, isn't it interesting that God's provision, that, that God, that is, that God provided an encouraging word uh, to Hannah? How encouraging are we to other people? Well, you know, I just don't. Ah, boy, it sounds like you're in a mess. I, I, I don't know how that's going to work out. Yeah, well, maybe they are in a mess. But why, instead of saying, yeah, well, I don't know how it's going to work out. Well, we don't know how it's going to work out. But why don't we say things like, are, are you trusting in the Lord? Are you really looking to Him to provide the things that you need? You know, there, there's certain things that we can help other people with. But there's certain things that only God can do for people. And we need to point people to God who can do that. When God gives us something, it's important to hold it with open hands. Certainly Hannah did that. She recognized her son as a stewardship from God. And as the people of God, we're stewards. We're not owners of God's grace. We're stewards of God's grace. It's just passing through our hands. And the people of God are not masters. We are servants. And we're to be used by God as He desires to use us. Hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. So, well, and the hand says, well, I really want to be a foot. I don't like being a hand. Well, the ear says to the eye. Remember, Paul uses that when he talks, when he writes to the Corinthian church. No, God will use us as He desires and when He desires to use us. God is worthy of our praise, worship, and adoration. Do we consider God as our rock? People change, circumstances change, but God doesn't change. He is our rock. And Hannah verbalized her confidence in God's providence, God's protection, and God's provision. Are we as quick to thank God and to praise Him as we are to petition Him? I, I hope so. I want to close by reading this uh, quotation from uh, James Packer's little book, Praying. Uh, and I put the... Uh, if you want to get a copy of it, uh, the information is there in your notes. But uh, let me just read this. When And this is a Packer writing. When we pray, it's not for us to suppose that we twist God's arm or are in any way managing the situation. We aren't. We should learn to think of our praying as less a means of getting from God what we want than as the means whereby God gives us the good things that He proposes to give, but that we're not always in a fit condition to receive. 
God intends all along to give these good things, but He waits to be asked so that we will properly value the gift when it comes and our hearts will be turned in gratitude and renewed trust to the one who gave. It is no accident that Christians down the century have typically prayed on their knees. In kneeling, the body reminds the mind that God, not the person, is in charge. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.